All right, welcome to another Gray Pages. And I, uh, by the way, so I'm, I don't see Hugh, uh, but I'm here with Taylor, and uh, and Taylor is uh, with uh, friend Rodney in what looks like the most attractive space. I just see nothing but like the most appropriate. This should be the permanent background, like builder tools hanging behind them. Why don't I just throw you guys the ball immediately for you to? Uh, Taylor, why don't you just make some introduction here and uh, we'll just roll from there. Yeah, welcome everyone. We're uh, today on location in uh, the Soulcraft Makers Space, which is here in Ferguson, Missouri, just a little outside of Alton, Illinois. I would say we're what, seven, eight, nine miles away from each other. A 15 minute drive. Yep. Um, <clears throat> and I spend a good bit of time over here. Uh, Rodney allows me to come over and work in the shop with him, um, which is just a, yeah, a amazing outlet for me to meditate and work with my hands and do something that I love. And uh, we always have great conversation out of it, but we've been wanting to get Rodney on the podcast for a while. Um, Rodney and I connected, uh, uh, I think almost a couple years ago. And uh, the, just the story of, of his journey and uh, coming to this place and moving to Ferguson and all we talk about with, uh, the, you know, the contrast between planting churches as opposed to uncovering the kingdom and, and architecting the ecosystem has just been uh, more and more pertinent uh, to, the, to the moments that, that we've had and the conversations that we've had. And yesterday we just kind of went in deep. We just started talking about, I think right now we're building some cabinets and you know, Rodney's mentoring, uh, you know, hundreds of students a month in high schools throughout Ferguson and St. Louis here and lots of uh, other individuals that just kind of come across the shop. I could tell a lot of stories about this space and how it really embodies what we dream of when we talk about tables within the ecosystem. Um, I can't really show you, but right here outside of our front window is the main street that passes through Ferguson, Missouri, which is obviously became famous in, I want to say 2014 yeah. when the riots uh, took place with the um, the death of Mike Brown and and all that went down there and the kind of uh, origin of the Black Lives Matter movement and so many other things, which I'd love for you to include in any way you want to in your story. But it seems like every time I'm here, someone new will mosey into the shop. Um, the way that the shop is set up, it's about 10% of the square footage is uh, dedicated to retail. The other 90 is dedicated to shop space, work, uh, power tools, all the good stuff. And somebody will mosey in, want to know what's going on, want to, you know, see how they can get involved. And one thing leads to another. Good news starts happening. Uh, good stories start being shared. So, man, I want you to go anywhere. Uh, we just really wanted to highlight your story. Um, the whole premise behind Gray Pages is for us to unpack thoughts that we have, mm -hmm. not just throughout our Brave Cities book, but throughout kind of our philosophy of the kingdom and of uh, Jesus's heart for the church and for Matthew 28, making disciples and for the poor and for, um, you know, uh, the embodiment of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. 
So I would say John will probably throw out the title later in the episode, but I would say today's gray page is really centered around the contrast between, uh, you know, modern day church planting mm. and uh, incarnating and uncovering the kingdom or kingdom ecosystems, as we call it. And so, man, you can start at the beginning, you can start at the, in the middle, you can start at the end and work backwards. It doesn't matter to us. But as you tell your story, we'll just kind of fill in and, and ask questions and chat and see what what we can uncover in this gray page. Yeah, right on. Um, well, I guess where I would start, I mean, just to your point earlier about, you know, anytime you're in this space, you know, it's not uncommon for folks to just kind of wander in here. I think it's an important um point to make when you're setting tables that you know if you've set the right table you don't need to promote and market and all that sort of stuff i mean it it, it invites people in and of itself and i and i've i've just naturally seen that i've really done nothing um other than plant myself in this little corner of ferguson uh which i hope to you know where you have this faithful presence for years to come but if man if the first year is any indication of where this thing's going in terms of um, engaging um, our neighborhood and our community. Um, I don't know what the next 10 years is going to look like. So, yeah, I I mean, the whole idea behind for me, like, you know, making things, craftsmanship, um, craft, you know, the craft of woodworking is very life-giving. Um, I remember when we had our open house about a year ago, um, you know, people walked in this place because not a lot of new things start here. So anytime something new starts, there it's instantly hopeful, right? There's hope. Um, that when new things begin and I had a lot of people just share that with me uh, a year ago so um, you know I, there was a time in say American <clears throat> history when you know craftsmanship mattered in the establishment of a new city um, and I just really believe like soul craft's going to play a role in the renewing of a city um, and you mentioned you know the Mike Brown unrest you know back in 2014 um, you know, we're still rebounding from that. There's still a lot of uh, stuff to kind of, you know, navigate through. But um, part of why we're here is, is you know, for that reason. My wife um, was at a, a community college here in this community when that uh, unfolded. Um, and in fact, I didn't even think Soulcraft was probably going to land here. I thought we were going to be going to Alton to be a part of uh, the work that you and Hugh were doing over there. Um, but it was my wife that actually said, hey, you know, we probably should pray about doing this in Ferguson um, because of her connection here with the students. So, it's, so she was, you know, in the trenches with the students who were trying to process, you know, all of that unfolding back in 2014. Uh, so she has a real heart for this community. And I do too. Now, now that we're here, we've been here about a year and a half. Uh, we relocated our family here and we just love the town, love the people. And, um, and so we're just thankful to be here, man. It's just so Tell a little bit of your backstory. You you were involved in uh, kind of the traditional ministry model and really church planting yep. for what, 15, 20 years? Probably 25 years or so. 25 yeah. years. Yeah. So just give us a little insight into that journey. And it, I mean, I'm setting you up. So I'll just go ahead and be honest. I want you to kind of contrast the two. Mm -hmm. But uh, and John, jump in at any point you want, but but just give us a little bit of that backstory. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say I, I was talking to my wife about a little bit of this last night. Um, you know, like many of the things we've started in the past, I mean, I think there was always good intentions, right? Yep. I mean, you yep. know, anytime no someone doubt. starts something and, you know, that's 
missional minded or ministry related or whatever. I mean, I, I, I mean, it's rare that someone does that with nil motive, right? I mean, we, we had good intentions and in everything that we started. Some, most of what we started was all we knew, you know, what we mm-hmm. saw modeled before us. Um, you know, so when I, when I first, when I was 27 years old and I found, um, my way to following Jesus, um, came into a very early church plant. Uh, it was about six months in really at the core development phase at that point. Um, and so, you know, for the most part, I was part of that church plant. Um, that's, they just celebrated like 25 or 26 years now, I think it was recently, um, somewhere in that, you know, story, probably about five years after that went, um, actually became a youth pastor in a traditional, uh, church context, just down the street from where this church was. Um, and then out of that, I, I decided I wanted to, to plant a church, um, probably for now that while I had good intentions, um, looking back, it was probably not, uh, the, you know, the best thing I, I ended up planting a church in the same community to really counter counter all the things that I didn't like about the church I was on staff at. Um, that's a horrible reason to plant a church, by the way. So don't go do that. <laughs> um, but what happened, I mean, because of a lot of what was going on there, there was sort of an instant, you know, exodus from that church to our church. And uh, so for that reason, it was unhealthy and not right. Um, ended up really um, getting hurt in that process. Um, exhausted, tired, you know, kind of wounded, so to speak, um, and really was kind of done. We decided, you know, so we left that um, that plant after several years um, and really just kind of, you know, we're licking our wounds, just trying to figure out what, you know, where was where was our place in this world? Where, you know, what were we going to do for, you know, to follow Jesus more faithfully? And um, oddly enough, we ended up going back to the church we left to go plant that church um, for, for a season. Um, had a buddy uh, who was doing some parachurch ministry over in, in Africa, decided that, you know, parachurch ministry in general was not healthy, that really most parachurch ministry should be rooted in the local church. And so he decided he was going to come back to the States and plant a church and asked if I would uh, do it with him. And I said, no, uh, for about two years. And he said, well, I'm not doing it until you do it uh, with me. So after about two years, finally felt like I was back in a good place where uh, we planted a uh, what I would say my third church plant, um, and that one, you know, took away a lot of stuff that you know mistakes that I made, a lot of the things that I saw in my own heart through those first two experiences, and really took those into the third church plant. And we planted in a in a context very similar to Ferguson over in Belleville, Illinois, um, in a pretty um, you know rough neighborhood. Really wanted to bring light to that that neighborhood. Um, what happened in that church plant? um as we did community really well um in terms of you know we were very intimate group very close um family-like uh to a fault though um so those other church plants i would say they were more you know really good at attracting and and you know uh, finding the lost so to speak um but um this church plant i think we overreacted and said look we're gonna we're going to build community. We're going to have a family. We're going to be family. And what happened though, is in that neighborhood, uh, people didn't feel like they can kind of break in and be, be a part of it. Uh, so learned a lot there. That was about a 10 year uh, venture. Um, we eventually decided to kind of shut that down and help people find other local churches. And that's when I found my way back into that original church. Um, the very first church um, I came back on 
and was a staff person there, um, preaching and teaching, um, primarily handling discipleship, things like that. Grew discontent. So my experience in almost every one of those scenarios was I grew discontent after about a year and a half. And this fourth time, I finally said, I got to I got to know why. And really did a lot of praying, uh, seeking counsel from others and why my heart always grew discontent in sort of traditional staff positions and churches. Um, and where it came down to is probably some of it was calling. Some of it um, was gifting, um, probably more of an apostolic type person. Um, essentially on the APES, I'm actually an AT, which is kind of a weird combination. But um, so I could start things, um, particularly if it meant if there was some teaching uh, component to it, um, but sustaining it wasn't something that um, I was very good at. Um, and so um, that's when I kind of found Hugh and Taylor. Um, I was, I'd read Tangible Kingdom by Hugh. I uh, got into this little four week cohort that Taylor and Hugh were leading. And um, at that point, things were kind of becoming, were kind of coming together for me in terms of what's next. I remember in that cohort, you know, looking at Taylor and saying, hey, man, I think I've got this thousand foot, thousand square foot wood shop in my basement that I do mentor people, you know, but I really want, I think it's, it's not being used to its full potential. And I think I need to leave this space. I was in a uh, very affluent white community uh, over in Illinois. And um, if I had started something like So Crap there, it would have just been a lot of people just interested in, a, in a, as a hobby. I don't. I don't know if it would have been as hopeful and brought the good that I'm seeing just in the year that we've been here in Ferguson. So, uh, so I'm thankful for having met these guys. Um, you know, we, we had done a lot of stuff over the years through those different church plants where we were alone. Um, I think that's, I think that for me, that's where we would go off to do things with the right intention and, and, and really different than what we were seeing in some of the traditional church contexts that we've been a part of, but, because we were alone, we ended up not able to kind of hang in there. Um, and so what I love about what we're doing right now is we're connected to, you know, this network and this community over in Alton, um, even while we're over here in Ferguson, um, kind of linked in with these guys and found like-hearted, like-minded people um, and just really feeling alive. For me, Soulcraft, by the way, uh, the, the kind of the reason behind the name is that I believe it's an activity that's both fruitful and fulfilling. Um, there was many times and throughout my life, um, you know, following Jesus where I, I'd, I'd been doing things where I saw fruit, but I wasn't fulfilled doing it. There were times when I found a lot of enjoyment in it, but didn't see any fruit. And then there were times that neither one of those existed. And that really, uh, I would say, you know, soul craft because of the, the life-giving aspects of making things is very fulfilling. Uh, but now that I'm seeing the fruit from it, um, for me, it's, it's the intersection of those two things that really, uh, brings about calling in our life. So, yep. What you thinking, man? I got, I got some, some whoppers rolling do around. Do it, do it, do it. Roll. Get, I'm, 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 this is, this is all great for me, like context wise. Just go ahead and keep navigating. Well, I mean, I guess the biggest that pops in my mind is you just, just thinking about the story of Jesus and how it's evolved over the past couple thousand, few thousand years. Um, even if you go before then, uh, you know, Jesus came and he placed himself in a, in a position and in a location where there wasn't really much of a, 
there wasn't much of a need or or an effort to to make it attractional so that people would come. I guess we'll use I'll just go with those terms right now. It was more I want to go and be where um, there is hurt, where there is loneliness, where there is um, lack of options, lack of access. And, he, and, you know, let's just we'll stick with our terminology. But he he built tables there. Literally, uh, it sounds like he might have built tables um, and he he opened up his life. And so, like, I think the big one right now is the sadness that I feel, the frustration that I feel to watch so many brothers and sisters uh, live kind of in this context of constantly trying to get others to come to their thing, to be a part of their thing. Um, I was talking with our friend Joel, who's been on the podcast before recently, and uh, we were having this. So let's just we were in this conversation and he just said, man, I think the core um, idea that separates this from this Jesus story from everything else is uh, the incarnation among the poor or presence among the poor. And um, so here we are in a space at a table where uh, I don't think you've ever really invited anyone here. Uh, Not you, once. you just built it uh, where, you know, where there was hunger, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And hungry the hungry came and said uh what does it mean to make things good what does soul craft mean can i can i build a picture frame for my mother can i tell you my story uh can we come over for dinner and week after week after week more and more stories of good news are coming from a table that was built among uh people who don't necessarily have options. And so I'll, I'll land with this. I'm trying to provoke you, John, but um, almost everywhere I go, if we ever do a Q&A time, I usually get a handful of the exact same questions everywhere. And it, it, it's amazing to me how often I get this question. Can we do what you're talking about in the suburbs? And it's that specific question with that specific wording. And I always want to navigate it well because we don't want to mm -hmm. we don't want to make people feel hopeless or we certainly don't want to mm -hmm. present any kind of like, nah, you're screwed, man. You're in the suburbs. And so you can't you know, you can't reach anybody there. But one thing that I did say this past week when we were in Orlando to a brother, I said, here's the thing about the suburbs, man. And I, I need and I need you to understand this. The suburbs were built and were designed in essence to separate themselves from neediness. They were designed and architected and civilly engineered to create a, a distance from those who are poor, who are dangerous, who are, uh, you know, necessarily or not necessarily um, uh, uh, unusual in our, in our kind of uh, context of what is normal. And so you've, you've placed yourself in a situation where people, uh, don't necessarily have a lot of needs. So we can talk about strategy and we can talk about ways to connect with your neighbors and to reach your neighbors. But I do want you to understand that like, you're kind of, you're, you're putting yourself in a, 
in a scenario and in a context that really seems to be moving away from Jesus's heart in Luke 4, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor in Matthew 25, uh, where they are, that's where, where you'll find me. So I guess that's kind of the first thought that I want to stir today is like, how important is it to build tables where the poor are? You know, um, just reacting to the question that you're getting, I get what you're setting up and I, and I'd love to hear Rodney's kind of like thoughts on this. Um, but what's interesting is in, you said worded something like, can we do what you're talking about in the suburbs? And like the immediate question that I have, um, is what is it you think that we're talking about? Like, like that's an actual, like, that's a, like a subterranean question there. Like, wait, uh, the question you just asked makes me now wonder what did I just communicate or what is it that you heard me talking about? And, and I, and I wonder if that doesn't prompt us kind of getting at the thing that we're sharing that is being asked about that. Like what, what, like, are we, is this a model that we're talking about or a like some sort of a lifestyle ethos kind of uh, presence and neighborliness and, and, and somehow committed to um, proximity in a way that is actually a core value set. I don't know. I just see you guys nodding around the question. Like I'm just, uh, if you want to kind of continue to riff on that, I just wanted to throw that back as like a, um, the immediate thing that came to mind, like what I would want to know of the person that asked that question, like what, yeah. what do you, what is it you picture doing? Yeah. I mean, you got to know that many of we live in a moment where church is an enterprise, right? And where uh, the the evangelical or the Christian industrial complex is still very powerful. Mm -hmm. So, you know, similar to, to starting a small franchise restaurant, like a, like a Chipotle, you know, uh, people are looking for what's working. And I, I agree with Rodney, man. I think that most of the time it's because of pure intentions. I was with a group of seminary students yesterday and they were virtually asking the same questions like what's working? What can we do to make disciples? What can we do to be successful in this, in this industry? Because like why? Because we want to see people have hope. We want to see people have life again or uh, life for the first time. So I think there are predominantly pure intentions. Um, but I would say that without getting too kind of mystical and deep into the into the heart of men, I would say that most people are looking for a model. And so when we talk about brave cities, what people hear is, oh, okay, this is a new model of planting churches. Even well, if we say, yeah, we and don't, fair, and we fair don't enough, by the way, because Rodney's own story and it is real. It is real that we, this is actually how discipleship does actually work by invitation because his own story is like, we set out with the best of intentions. And what is it that I did? I did what was modeled to me. Like, mm -hmm. that's what I built. I built what I like knew. And we've been replicating the thing, uh, you know, and then you come back to the question, like, well, what is it producing in the world? And, and, and kind of, you know, I uh, just recently uh, 
connected with Alan Hirsch. He was in Tampa recently and he, he just, this line has just been echoing in my head. Like the thing it's producing is what it was perfectly designed to produce. Right. That's right. Like it just, yep. It's spitting out the thing that it was made to spit out. And, yep. um, and if you're not happy with the thing that it's spitting out, there's a system kind of re rethink that has to go on, but it does make sense that people will be like, Oh, I want a model. But me, you know, when you say like they want something that works for discipleship for, um, successful or whatever, you know, what comes to mind is, and I echo this all the time, but mother Teresa, you know, going, yeah, it's still Calcutta, but I wasn't called to be successful. I was yeah. called to be faithful. Like yeah. I was called to be here and faithful. Ronnie, jump in. I see, I see your child. Yeah, no, no. I, I, cause as you guys are talking, it was just something to put on my heart here was like, I, I think the question I was not asking in those other contexts was, was what could I what could I give that's most life-giving or good, right? Um, I probably wasn't thinking about that in those other contexts, right? I was thinking about, you know, what what I was building. Um, and, and I think, you know, just to give you a story here, you know, this past summer, uh, I had a young young man come in here uh, with a girlfriend. And I'd been driving up and down this main street that uh, you know, Taylor was referring to earlier that was at the center of the unrest back in 2014 you know buildings were burning and you know everything on the national news and world news was centered on this little street here that i'm that i'm anchored on and he walked in here with a girlfriend and uh he walked in he goes i've been driving by this place for for weeks now and i keep seeing the name on the window and i just i kept telling my girl i wonder what's in there and that's what the name alone drew him in here so she goes well we need to stop so she finally made him stop and they walked in and uh, he walked in, he goes, what is going on in here? And I kind of told him the story, what we're doing and how, and, and you know, kind of how we engage people around the craft of woodworking. And I, I made a statement, something like uh, making things is very life-giving to me. And his, and he like was, his jaw dropped and his posture changed, his shoulders dropped. And he was like, he goes, man, he says, what you don't understand. He says, like, just two weeks ago, my brother was shot and killed in North St. Louis. And all I've known recently is death. And when you talk about something that's life-giving, he says, I, I want that. So he started hanging out in here with me. Uh, we built things together. He had stopped working in those two weeks after his brother had uh, been shot and killed. Um, was just really despondent, you know. And it was his girlfriend that made him stop in here after he kind of questioned what might be going on in here. And so, so for me, the questions have changed. Like, mm -hmm. what's the most good I could bring to this young man? What's the most life-giving thing can I speak into his life or you know navigate around in, in terms of working with our hands gauging the heart the hands you know um and the head all together uh through you know spending time in the shop together so he's back to work he's actually engaged now to be married to her he wants me to officiate their wedding which is uh going to be an interesting thing but um yeah it's just that's just one story that that is different than those other contexts because I'm asking different questions now. Yeah. And in, uh, in Brave Cities, we talk about how there's architecture or elements or like footings of a city. And then we talk about nuances. We'll 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 cover all these in the gray pages uh, over time. But the architecture, disciples, apostolic hub intentionality or in, intentional spaces economy and tables the nuances are anonymity and humility is one decentralization 
access, incubation, and innovation is one. Togetherness and proximity is one. Levity and suffering is one. I bring these up to say the reason we even wrote these down, which could shift and shape and form in different ways over the years, is because we do know that we all want some bullet points. Mm -hmm. We want some signposts to say, like, what are things we can shoot for? Uh, oftentimes it is going to be a, a, a little bit of an opposite of what we see in kind of the Western church today. Like anonymity is the opposite of everything we see, right? Uh, levity and suffering to me is one of the, the most sacramental things that we talk about how to be lighthearted and not take ourselves too, too seriously, whether it's in our own suffering or in our things not working. Access is a big one. So if you're planting or, or, or developing something, advertently or inadvertently to where the hurting of your context, like the, the truly poor of your context don't have access to you, or to, to what you're doing, I would always say, I would always say, man, you got to rethink what you're doing. You got to rethink where, where you are geographically right now. It doesn't seem to make a lot of, a lot of kingdom sense. So I'm for that. But the, the idea of model is not what we're, what we're uh, trying to inspire. We did an episode a few months back uh, that we, I think we ended up calling art, not math or music, not math. And we talk about this a lot too, because um, we think that a lot of people are looking for the math of this model. And we cannot stress enough, like this isn't a model, guys. This is, this is a song that everybody sings in a different way, but but the idea of a city, man, the idea of an ecosystem has been around since the beginning, will be around uh, till the end and into what we call eternity. So I don't think that changes. I think we're still building a city. But that's that's to answer your question long way around, man. That's what I think. I think people hear it and they're inspired and they're like, oh, how do I do this new model? You know, this uh, this model is is finishing up and I'm moving on to the new model. And this seems like the the cutting edge one. And we're going now, nah, I'm telling you, the the only thing you can't do is make this into a model. You know, it's it's really interesting um, when you're using the, the language of art, which we've talked about or music. But like the other day, it just hit me. Um, I was actually sharing with this group of people that we brought together recently and I had this moment where I looked at the room and I realized, like you set a table and you invite people to this table, but then like, there's something like magic that happens. And I actually looked at someone that had helped me kind of build this and went, it worked. Like, look around. Can you feel it? Do you see it? Like it worked like, and the language of magic came to mind where I was like, there were elements 
you know, like, like, like I just picture, like, I don't, I'm not a magician, but like, you know, in the, in the movies or whatever, it's like, well, you need a pinch of this and you need a little like toad and you need like, so there's some things you want to bring to the mix. Like even the things you just rattled off, it's like, you need a certain posture with the poor and you need access and you need like, there's these, you know, the presence of suffering and there's these elements that you want to bring uh, to the, to the cauldron. Right. And then there's like this prayer, this incantation that you, you, you do it. And does the spell work? And it's like a power greater than us. This thing that emerges is like, we, we brought the things together. And I actually realized like, man, like that there is a, an element of this that is like a mysterious magic in a way, like something is happening. And what's interesting is you can kind of see like, whether you look in a woodwork shop or you look in a coffee shop or a bike shop or, or, you know, or in a garden space or like all of these different um, tables that get set, these very different things that you wouldn't look at one and the other and go, Oh, those are the same thing. And yet like when you kind of get a whiff of that style of magic, that presence of kingdom, you, you walk into the spaces and you're like, Oh, this is, this is that. Like yeah. it, it just happens to look like this woodwork shop. And Rodney, I guess the question I'd put to you then is like one for those listening, I do think it would be helpful to paint the picture beyond like you, you've kind of said like the name, there's like a curse of knowledge thing going on. Like you've said the name of the space and that you use like crap, but like paint the picture a little bit more of like what you do there, you know, like the, the program for someone completely unfamiliar but then I think that the way to do that, the approach to do that is like your own experience of stumbling into the right um, incantation, the right, ma- you know, like the, the magic emerged there and now try to like go back a little bit. Like, what do you guys do? And what, how did that happen? What happened there? Yeah, yeah. No, it's good. Cause I, as you were talking, both of you were talking, I was thinking about how like, like what we, what we're doing here in Ferguson is, I mean, we've got we've got multiple connected spaces that they're, they're unique, right? Like we've got the wood shop where we're using the craft of woodworking to engage people um, in terms of, you know, this, you know, what you were just referring to um, and people sense it. people have actually made a lot of people have made comments. Like there's something different in there, something unique going on or something. In fact, they even without me prompting them with the whole life-giving language, they use that language. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've got a story where like, so what we do is we invite people then into our home. So this is a table around the craft of woodworking, but we invite people into our home around our actual dining room table. So people who are engaging with us here in the, in the shop, um, we're, we're inviting them to a rhythm of eating around our table. Um, and I've got a story there where we've had a couple young men that were in our shop um, making picture frames. And I'll talk a little more about how we engage people here in a moment, but um, they got invited into this rhythm of eating at our house. And uh, these are young, like high school students. And so they came in through another group um, that are kind of mentoring them and, and leading them as well. But um, their mentors were there as well. And at one point at our meal, uh, one of them leaned over to their mentor and said, why are all these good things happening to me? So what they had experienced in the shop was good. What they've been, what they were experiencing in our home was good. There was a consistent goodness that they were experiencing. All those things that you were just referring to, John, that, that 
they there was a consent the, the there was a uniqueness in the spaces right at yep. the tables yep. but there was something common um yep. and similar and that's the kingdom right that's the this goodness that comes from the kingdom so i i actually sent this out today where you know there's a passage in colossians where we're to set our heart and mind on things above where christ is seated that's like top shelf stuff right that's jesus is everything that is good you know and he's seated above and a lot of times what we do is we're you know we we, that's kind of out of reach for us. I mean, we just think about it that way, but then it goes on in Colossians to say that uh, to live, you know, live your very lives in such a way and speak in such a way that brings that top shelf stuff, that goodness to, to the bottom shelf. And I think that's what's happening in our tables. And when we do that, they experience that goodness that was once top shelf, but Jesus actually came mm. to bring it and put it mm. on the bottom shelf. So, mm. but, uh, yeah. yeah. So like, here in the shop, I mean, there's a couple of ways that people can engage with us. Um, you know, if they want to, if there's something they've been wanting to make, um, they don't have the tools or knowledge, they come in, I mentor them for free. They just bring their materials in. Um, I always talk to people, this is my, this, my shop is your shop now. It's a community shop. So just come when you want to come and I'll, I'm here to mentor you. Um, I, we do have a full maker program that uh, where people make things to give away. Uh, there's four projects where I mentor them. The first one is to make something to give away. Um, that's intentional because a lot of times if you've never made anything with your own hands, um, there's a certain pride attached to that, which is a good pride, right? I've, I've taken yep. a lot of pride. and yep. But man, when you then are asked to give it away, it does something uh, unique in them. Um, they did it in me. So um, then we, we teach them to make something to keep for themselves. And then we actually help them design, build and sell something. They get to keep the profits from that. Yep. Um, and then they bring somebody into the shop and they help them with their first project. And so that's kind of our maker program. It's kind of got a built in sort of, you know, multiplication, so to speak into it. But, uh, there's so many, uh, conversations that we can have, uh, along that pathway, um, that really help us to engage and, and kind of, all that, all those elements you were talking about earlier, kind of just built in or baked into that naturally. Um, I didn't even, I don't, I was awakened when I was, before we moved to Ferguson, um, I kept getting up at three in the morning. I, I'm not a morning guy, but the Lord kept awakening me and, and really gave me those, that, that pathway and even the order, because I wanted them to be able to keep their first thing. And I, I argued with God, I said, no, man, let them keep it. And he said, no, make them give it away. Um, and, and it turns out that that, that pathway is really my woodworking journey. First thing I ever made, I, I made something for my future in-laws and then I started making things for myself and people said, Hey, I'd pay you to make me a table. Then I stopped doing commissions and said, Hey, uh, do you want a table? Come in and I'll teach you how to make it. So, mm. and it's interesting that, you know, let's just keep the contrast going. Cause I think some people out there need to hear this. It just like in, in that kind of previous, I know your story and I know that even for years you've been inviting people into your home, Yeah. but in that, in that kind of vocational and uh, Jesus following journey that you were on more oftentimes than not, the one thing that was like the heavy burden was that let's keep this organizational church functioning. Mm -hmm. Let's keep this thing above water. Let's, we got to get more people to this thing. Yep. And it just, just on the simplest level of Jesus saying, I, you know, I came to give you life. I came to, to remove the yoke. You know, my, it, mine is easy. My burden is, is light. Mm -hmm. I came to uh, let you cast these cares upon me. And, 
And then when we move into what we would call like the graduate school or the the real kind of real work of ministry, that's when the burden becomes heaviest mm -hmm. because we feel such a pressure and so many. I mean, the data is out there. Dudes are falling apart by the droves because they feel such an enormous pressure to compete with whatever the other thing is, mm -hmm. to compete with whatever ministry or service or program or band or sermon series or whatever it may be. And, and then now you just you move into a, a scenario in your life where you just get to get up, you make money, you make amazing uh, uh, products, furniture and and shelving. And I mean, dude, if John, if you could see some of the stuff in here, bro, it's like top, top world class stuff. You know, he would say it's not, but it, it clearly is when you look at it. And and then as you're working with your hands, as you're doing something that you love, people find their way in. They sit at the table and you start to tell them good news. I, that that's one of the things that drives me is to just say what you're don't change anything that you're doing. Like for a lot of people, ministry has always been an addition to their life. Mm -hmm. Like I got to live my life, raise my kids, work my job. And then I got to add this like missional community every week from, from five to seven or this, this, you know, ministry to the poor every Thursday evening from six to eight or whatever, and more so this invitation and to know whatever it is that you're doing that you love, like let's, let's incarnate the good news around go, that right? as you go. Yeah. And then it, unless you got something real quick right there, John, I was going to say one more thing of how important it is because a lot of people have a heart like yours, have a passion or a drive they're in a workspace they're starting their own business whatever it may be you actually started this as a part of our net of our nonprofit network it's mm -hmm. a business that you run that you oversee but it's actually in our ecosystem so that's pretty cool and, yeah. and that's that's available for people to do in any city in any space right now the 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 law is laid out to where you can actually have you know, a, a, a nonprofit holding company that holds business LLCs. That's super cool. We can talk about that on another episode. But had you just done this kind of on an island, it might have been a little different for you, don't you think? Like be doing it as a part of a distributed network, share how some of those stories, those interconnected tables have really served each other. And let me finish my first thought. A lot of people have that. Some people want to build the whole network. Mm -hmm. we, we, we call them sometimes in our terminology, we'll call them city builders. In the bell curve, they're, they're referred to as like the innovator class. Tends to be a smaller percentage of humanity, but a large percentage of humanity have, have a drive to start something, mm -hmm. to launch something, to to put their hands to something that they're passionate about. A good friend of ours just started a high competitive youth basketball program in Alton. He's very driven for that. He wants to give his life to that. So he's now, his program beyond basketball is now a part of a, a distributed faith, a decentralized distributed faith network. T tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, 
before I speak to my own situation, like on the on the what you were talking about with the Beyond Basketball, I mean, from what I know of that story, I'm not sure he would have started that if he had not connected with yeah. that community, right? Yeah. So, I you know my wife and I over the years, I mean, we've started a number of things that have you know were kingdom minded, uh, but we did them alone, um, and and in many cases, you know, um, you know they weren't we couldn't sustain it alone. I mean, there were lots of things. We needed conversations. We needed encouragement. We needed prayer. We needed, you know, um, you know, just all that's built into, you know, a network or a community like that. Um, so having had that experience in the past, I don't know if I would have started Soulcraft um, without having LinkedIn or, or connected with uh, the Lantern Network. So, um, and I, you know, I think, you know, it's interesting because like, you know, like that young man I was talking about, earlier that came into my shop where his brother had been shot and killed he actually started following jesus um as a result of being in here and you know he, oh wait so let me interrupt you yeah so someone was welcome in your shop that didn't follow jesus <laughs> <laughs> yeah because this is like a church right yeah. this yeah. is like a gathering yeah. space for so what if he didn't believe like hold to your theology right could he have still come here yeah absolutely what if he like was totally uh opposed to your views of sexual orientation absolutely still welcome here. yeah isn't that wild <laughs> what if like what if he was just uh a hardcore uh 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 you know uh what's it called Pol what if his political views were hardcore on the other side of yours still welcome yeah. what yeah <laughs> i mean this is wild man to even think about like there is a possibility of of architecting spaces where we don't have to weed out people that don't think like us where we don't have to ostracize people who have different political views or different views on religion or different views on faith and it's i would guess it wasn't even a thought for you mm -hmm. and that that's another i think really important idea to wrestle with it's like we've created we've created these spaces where people aren't welcome, mm -hmm. even if it's, you know, uh, even if it's kind of an undertone, they know I'm not welcome there because I don't think like those people or I don't, I don't uh, believe what they believe or I don't lean in the direction that they lean in. So sorry. Yeah. Keep well, no, no, story. well, no, I was just going to say, and I'll come back to him just to tag on to what you're saying there. Cause I was saying my previous context, I mean, I just, I found myself, in situations where we were just trying to outbuild the the next church, right? We were outbuilding one another. Um, and, you know, and I would say what I'm experiencing now is that we're outdoing one another and showing honor is really what we're trying to do. And so, I mean, there's just a, you know, it, it's a different kind of building, right? I mean, we're building, you know, for Kino, we're, we're wanting to see that bottom shelf stuff accessible to everyone, regardless of all the things you just listed, right? So, um, but anyway, he just wanted to know, like, well, what do I do now, man? I'm like, you know, and I'm like, well, just keep doing what we've been doing, bro. I mean, what do you, what are you passionate about? What do you, you know, what would, what table would you set? Right. It's a different conversation, man. I spent 25 years in other church contexts trying to convince people to, to live Monday through Saturday in a particular way, you know, but all we did was attract them to a Sunday centric. It goes back to what Alan yeah. was saying. Like we we're only producing that which we're right. building. Exactly. Uh, how many times have I sat in a context where where faith leaders are 
complaining relentlessly about the consumer culture mm -hmm. of churchgoers. And I'm just like, bro, we did this. Right. And are, and are actively engaged in it. You know, uh, so I want to share something that I think is thematically on point here. Um, so, uh, and I, I don't think I've done this before, but I want to share something with you guys. So, so Dorothy, do you guys know Dorothy Sayers? Yeah. You know the name? So Dorothy Sayers wrote that essay, Why Work? Mm -hmm. um, yep. Which I encourage like absolutely everybody listening to go download and read through that. Um, but in the, in the, uh, Taylor, I know you were trying to like get at the, 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 like this con we're trying to flesh out this contrast a little bit and right on what you're saying, like the thing that you had been trying to convince someone to do versus like, uh, you know, apart from their Monday through Saturday. So I want to read this just small section, um, uh, from this essay, which by the way, uh, she wrote this essay, um, right around the time of world war two and she actually during, and she's like, re she's reflecting on how different our society got. Like all of a sudden we're doing all the right things. Like we're conserving, um, you know, we're sharing, we're like rethinking economy. The value of work is actually about the thing produced, not just how much money it makes because you need, you know, especially as they're building like armaments for war. And she's like, we're doing all of this for the art of war. And I keep hearing people say, when we go back to normal and she's like, it's scary to me because we're actually doing what is right now. And we're longing to go back to this other way. And she mm -hmm. digs in a little bit in the letter specifically on the church. Right. And so there's this little section, she says the church's approach. And I just think it's fitting because her examples a carpenter. Um, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk or disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand of his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables church by all means <clears throat> church by all means and decent forms of amusement, certainly. But what, but what use is all of that? If in the very center of his life and occupation, he is insulting God with bad carpentry, no crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, I dare swear came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth, nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. No piety in the worker will compensate for work that is not true to itself for any work that is untrue to its own technique is a, is living a lot is a living lie yet in her own buildings, her own ecclesial art in music, her own hymns and prayers, her sermons and her little books of devotion, the church will tolerate or permit a pious intention to excuse so ugly, so pretentious, so tawdry and twaddling, so insincere and sipid, so bad as to shock and horrify any decent draftsman. And why? Simply because she has lost all sense of the fact that living in eternal truth is expressed in work only so far as that work is true in itself to itself and to the standard of its own technique. She has forgotten the secular vocation is sacred, forgotten that a building must be good architecture before it can be a good church, that a painting must be well painted before it can be a good sacred picture, that a work must be good work before it can be called God's work. Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside of it. The apostles complained rightly when they said that it was 
not meet, that they should leave the word of God to serve tables. Their vocation was to preach the word, but the person whose vocation it is to prepare the meals beautifully might equally with equal justice protest. It is not meet for us to leave the service of our tables to preach the word. The official church wastes time and energy and moreover commits sacrilege in demanding that secular workers should neglect their proper vocation in order to do Christian work, by which she means ecclesiastical work. The only Christian work is good work done well. Let the church see to it that the workers are Christian people and do their work well as to God. Then all the work will be Christian work, whether it is church embroidery or sewage farming. If you want, if you want, if you want to produce Christian work, be a Christian and try to make a work of beauty into which you have put your heart. Do not adopt a Christian pose and let the church remember that the beauty and the work will be judged by its own and not by ecclesiastical standards. Sorry. I know that was a long excerpt, but like, I just felt like it just so, so spoke to what we were saying. It's spot on. Can I, can I say one thing? So thing we say here at Soulcraft is we we make things good and and that was intentional wording it may sound like bad grammar and I've had people ask me well, why don't you say we make good things and I said well I hope we do that too but <laughs> it limits our mission um, so what we hope is that we make things good in the lives of our makers and in our community um, and I think it just speaks to what she was saying there it's just I mean it's just on point man that's good yeah, I actually think that's the best way I've had this on my mind the whole episode and i want to take that that excerpt that you read and somehow because this is everything we're talking about right now um you guys know thomas merton he talks a lot about prayer and particularly contemplative prayer and i think in the context of him writing this he was being pressed about what we were saying earlier like what is the way is this the right way is this the right model and this is what he says He says, the contemplative way is, in fact, not a way. Christ alone is the way, and he is invisible. The desert of contemplation is simply a metaphor to explain the state of emptiness which we experience when we have left all ways, forgotten ourselves, and taken the invisible Christ as our way. And I think that there is a a, a merger that has to take place of this um of this uh treatise of work that Sayers gave us and this beautiful idea of really prayer but what we would call you know what we when we talk a lot we say just listening listening for the song that God is singing as you're in his presence just start doing what he's doing if you're already building tables, build them good and build them honest. If you're already building buildings, if you're already writing music, if you're already yeah. brewing coffee, brew it well and brew it honest. But if you can if you can embody this idea of Christ is actually the way mm-hmm. and his kingdom is where his presence is. And then, of course, you know, we, we aren't called to... to to leave the world we're in it we're smack dab in it and we build the you know we architect and 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 incarnate the kingdom in that space that's everything that we're trying to embody in this conversation that's good well and back to those 
questions that people ask, like, can we do this in this space or that space at some profound level? The answer is everywhere you find yourself, you can embody the values of the kingdom. Um, and at the same time, the fact that you're asking me that right now um, does betray a little bit of the like, the like the thing that I'm actually trying to communicate, which as at a DNA level, not a model level, right? It's like, no, it's, yeah. it's be like Jesus there yeah, and yeah. there and there. But honestly, um, when, when we look at his life, this is like my own reading of it. It seems like if I was looking for him in my own city, I would probably look among yeah. the poor and the prostitute and the outcasts and the forgotten and the hurting and the imprisoned and the sick. That just seems like what he told, like those are the clues that he left for me. Um, yeah. and so that's probably where I would, uh, go to look Rodney, man. I'm, I'm, I was there and walked y'all space as you were just getting it. It was a big empty room and an yeah. idea. Um, and just even just the little glimpse of it I have as you're sitting there, I can't wait to get back in uh, and just be in there, man. I mean, it 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 it's so beautiful uh, that you guys have like been able to kind of build this like home of this house of hospitality for those around you. And um, yeah, well, even you are welcome here too. So yeah. <laughs> even the anarchists, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I would just end this, man, because people want to know what, you know, what's soul craft look like? I mean, they because they're so they're, they're driven by other kinds of metrics. Right. There you, and, go. you know, and and I said, man, I'm just trying to be faithful today, you know, with what's right in front of me. And I think that's really just a kingdom minded, you know, posture, which is how can I be most faithful in this moment with who's right in front of me? You know, and in this case, man, people just walk in here. So I'm just trying to trying to be faithful. But, so you yeah. don't have like a five, 10 year plan about how you're going to scale. No, every no. <laughs> I don't got that. Nope. Like sell me a franchise on it. No, no. Yeah. You're missing it, huh? I guess I guess I'm off the Too mark. Too busy keeping your eyes on Jesus. Well, That's uh, <laughs> trying to do that too, but yeah. <laughs> it's all man, good. this is great. Um, Thank you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Good combo. Talk to you soon, man. All right, dude. Peace. All right.